Welcome to a new episode of the Foam at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're featuring a preview in anticipation of New Directors, New Films, a festival that has celebrated filmmakers who represent the present and anticipate the future of cinema, and whose daring work pushes the envelope in unexpected ways. NTNF offers yearly proof of cinema's long and bright future, and this year's edition, arriving in virtual form at a fraught time in film culture, is no exception. Dig into the highlights of the 2020 lineup in this Critics Preview, presented by HBO, and get tickets to this year's NDNF, now playing in our virtual cinema, at filmlink.org slash NDNF. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our New Directors, New Films Critics Preview. I'm Devika Girish. I'm the assistant editor of Film Comment and Film at Lincoln Center. And I'm joined today by a murderer's row, as they say, of critics who are uh, going to just sort of help me introduce the new directors, new films lineup to you all, go through some highlights, you know, talk about this year's special edition. Uh, but before I get to them, I just want to make a few remarks. Uh, new directors, new films is co-presented by Film at Lincoln Center and Museum of Modern Art. It's a showcase for uh, the most promising new filmmakers and daring new works of the year. It usually takes place in March and the 49th edition, which is this year's edition, was scheduled to take place then and then due to uh, unforeseen events that we all know what it is, uh, you know, things were postponed and now it's taking place this week. Uh, the festival just opened yesterday and is running through until December 20th and, you know, in sort of the big screen experience, uh, it's the whole festival screening exclusively in the SLC virtual cinema, which actually has a great park. It's available nationwide for the first time in its history. So, you know, if wherever you are in the US, you can watch these films. Um, and there's a special all access pass, which is 120 bucks, and that gets you access to all 24 features and 10 shorts. So I just want to plug that if you haven't had a chance to uh, purchase your tickets yet, that might be a good way to, you know, catch just all the films. Um, the New Directors New Films is also supported by FLC's New Wave membership program, which is a membership level for, uh, you know, audiences in their 20s and 30s. And it gives you all the great benefits of FLC's membership, uh, which include discounts, access to free films, exclusive Q&As and discussions, uh, and other kinds of events. Um, and as well as special events designed for this younger audience. And one exciting opportunity that's coming up for the New Wave members is the New Wave Film Club, which is sort of like a book club, but for movies. And the next one coming up is actually tied to New Directors New Films. It is about Anne at 3000 Feet, which uh, is, I know, a film that we will be discussing today. So if you're interested in finding out more, maybe joining the membership, getting access to that event, uh, email us at newwave at filmlink.org. And in general, if you want to become a member, which is a great way to support all the work that we do, uh, go to filmlink.org and you can find out how to do that. And Special thanks to HBO, who is our year-round presenter of Film at Lincoln Center Talks, uh, as you can see on my background. So thank you, HBO. All right, now that that's out of the way, uh, let me introduce the colleagues I have here today. I am going to call you out and let you uh, tell the audience who you are, what you do, you know, just whatever you feel like you wanna highlight at this moment of time. So we'll start with uh, Clint. 
who's my colleague. Uh, I'm Clinton Crute. I'm the digital editor at Film Comment, which is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Cool. Uh, Chloe? Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Chloe Lazat, and I am a freelance film critic. Um, I'm covering new directors' new films for Screen Slate, but you might also have seen me in Film Comment, Reverse Shot, or Cinemascope. Uh, Lucia? Hi everyone, I'm Lucia Salas. Um, I'm one of the editors of La Vida Util magazine, which is an Argentinian uh, printed magazine. And I'm also an independent curator and filmmaker. And Lucia, you're, are you joining us from Spain? I actually yes. didn't know where you were when I invited you. And it's like the middle of the night. Yeah, and we are, it's like midnight in Spain. Well, Thank you for uh, tuning in, really appreciate it. And last but not the least, Vadim. Hey, um, I'm Vadim Rizov. I'm the managing editor at Filmmaker Magazine. And you're joining us from far away Brooklyn? That's correct. <laughs> Good to know. Good to have a far and wide representation. Well, thank you all for joining me. Um, you know, uh, we just wanted to find a way to like kick off the new directors new films which is like i said sort of in a modified format but i think uh the lineup remains strong as ever it's definitely one of my favorite festivals because it's just so exciting to be introduced to the filmmakers who you know are you know going to be many of them are going to be big names later like Wong Kar Wai was uh you know a new directors new films filmmaker i believe kelly Reichert as well uh and just an amazing lineup and i feel like it's for me, it's been especially nice to have that at the end of this year, you know, when the state of cinema has seemed, you know, up in the air. And of course, we don't have communal cinema going, but to still remind ourselves that there are people out there who are innovating, uh, who seem to have like great careers ahead of them. So, you know, that's been really exciting. Um, and I think with the virtual format, you know, it is it is kind of different and you have, uh, even though there's a schedule, I think navigating the virtual space feels sort of more challenging and hopefully, you know, we can discuss kind of our sense of the lineup and also pick out some highlights and that'll give people a sense of like how to maybe dive in and how to contextualize uh, the festival in, in this like changed sort of context. So, um, I know we have a few films that we discussed that we definitely want to, you know, start off with. But before that, I'm also curious if, you know, uh, I know some of you have been watching press screenings. Chloe, I believe that you've been watching the press screenings these last two weeks. And if you just want to start us off by telling us what your experience has been. I know you've attended the festival in person in past years. And uh, just how has it felt? A, how has it been different? And are there films that have either felt like shortchanged or maybe like enhanced by, you know, this, the home viewing experience? Well, um, it's interesting in that I feel like uh, one advantage of the virtual cinema, especially for press screenings, because um, usually the press screenings for New York Film Festival are a little bit more comprehensive than for new directors, um, just because of the way they're scheduled. Um, I feel like I've been able to see more of the lineup this way, which I think is maybe a good thing. and. Um, Maybe there is something like uh, interesting or different or more highly charged about the more intimate way that you're watching things sort of at home. But I feel like by and large, whenever I see something that I really love, I'm just imagining myself seeing it in a theater and on the big screen and just kind of really relishing like the textures of um, like we were, I think we were planning to talk about Los Conductos and that film in particular is like 
it's so hard to describe the plot of it without describing like how it feels to watch it because mm. um, the director is part of a like uh, collective um, in Paris um, that's attached the to think, like, a film. Director Camilo Restrepo, just so. Yes. Thanks for the context. I forgot it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, he uh, is very involved with kind of 16 millimeter kind of film development and uh, the film feels very kind of handcrafted and uh, like, uh, I guess like really textural in the way that like is very visceral and central to the experience of seeing it. And so watching it, I was just like, wow, I, I wish I were in a theater right now. But I'm also grateful to be seeing so much of it. And I feel like by and large, every film has felt like really unique compared to the others, which I think is like, I've appreciated kind of the holistic approach of the programming in that way, in a more complete way. Hmm. Um, I'm wondering if anyone else had any like, you know, overall sort of curtain raiser type comments before. I think we should probably start with Los Conductos because it was on top of, you know, most of our lists. But Vadim, what about you? Um, I, I think you have also been attending the press screenings and I believe you've also attended the festival in the past. I'd love to know your take. Yeah, I have. I mean, in terms of the lineup, um, it sort of takes me back mentally to like September of last year, you know, starting with Anne at 13,000 feet and then kind of extends out to, you know, February when the Berlinale was happening. And I was like, you know, noting in my head what I would be looking for later in the year, possibly at new directors, new films, possibly elsewhere. Um, so it does kind of take me right back to where we thought we were in February, you know, like this was the beginning of the opening slates that would be continuing to roll out through and we kind of knew what to expect throughout the year. I think experientially, um, you know, my, my experience on the ground has been that new directors, new films is often not editorially prioritized. People don't have as much time to go to those screenings mm. as, as they do for those big NYFF premieres. So I often got very used to being, you know, like one of only five people in the audience sometimes. Like when I went to see Happy Hour, you know, which is five hours and 15 minutes long at 10 in the morning on Friday, not everyone has the editorial leeway to be able to do that. Um, I've also been moving a bit this year and there's been roommate turnover. So there was a, I went from a open television to a poorly calibrated projector to a well calibrated projector. So I'm watching stuff, my default viewing time is like 11 p.m you know, which I don't like one bit. Um, it's fine, everything looks good. Like I, I'm familiar with this platform by now, but as you guys all know, you're gonna get your name, uh, your, your name and email address watermarked on the left of the frame. And there are good reasons for that. Uh, but it, I've been thinking all year that um, we're seeing a, a plethora increasingly of people using academy ratio. And a side benefit of that is that you can keep your frame clear of the watermark. Like there would be like a practical reason to do this on an ongoing basis. That's so true. Yeah, I, I didn't think of it that way. And Los Conductors is, I, it is an academy ratio, right? Yeah. Um, again, like, sorry, what? So that might be why, why we like it so much. <laughs> a lot true. of just I'm not like constantly remind, like my name is not plastered on the streets of Colombia. Like, um, I did, uh, you know, I, I want to say like in response to your comment, Vadim, one of my great memories is like, I think three years ago when I first moved to New York and I had this advertising job that I didn't like and I quit it in like late Feb or March or something like I quit it and the New Directors New Films uh, Festival started immediately after. So I just quit my job, you know, I decided to just spend some time writing about movies and I just woke up every morning at nine and went to like the MoMA and then FLC to just watch uh, the press screenings and it was just this like 
incredible immediate immersion, uh, which was also so regulated. I was like, this is my job now, <laughs> watching new directors, new films, movies. Uh, and I have such great memories of that. Uh, I'm curious, Lucia, obviously, I don't think you attended this festival before, uh, physically, and this may be your first time. Uh, you know, you were able to see some of the press screenings, I believe, uh, yeah. and you've already seen some of the films, but I, what, what has been your impression? Well, it is my first time in the festival. I don't think I've ever watched any films at the Lincoln Center even in my entire life. So I guess it's a weird first experience. But it feels like, like Vadim was saying, it feels like in a way I'm catching up with so many things that I, for some, for one reason or another, I miss during the year. And then I, I don't know, I, I just really welcome this opportunity to catch up with some stuff that I've been wanting to watch, like Anna's 13 feet or discover some things that I had that I missed completely, like 12,000 that we're going to talk about in a while. So I'm like, I don't know, I'm, I'm excited that for the first time it really feels like catching up with something that I should have been watching, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Clint, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, and if you want to take us into Los Conductos, because I know you also, you saw it recently, and it's probably fresh on your mind. Yeah, I mean, I really feel the same as Lucia, that uh, this was a great opportunity to catch up on stuff, and the digital format um, kind of facilitated that a lot. But I was also pretty frustrated to not be able to see things on the big screen, like, and I do find it not that great to just sit at home and watch things on my laptop when other things are going on and like dinner has to be made and you know people are coming and going well you know the few people that i see that <laughs> the one person that you see <laughs> Ooh, there's two now um, that's true <laughs> so yeah so that's been that's been not ideal but um at the same time i was able to see a lot of things that i probably would not have otherwise had found time to see or go to a screening or you know things always tend to tend to get in the way and I have to skip screenings and um, this kind of and that way it's very good so I have been able to catch up on things that I really did want to see for a long time 12,000 I'd heard I'd been hearing Los Conductos um, which was uh, Devika wrote a feature an interview with um, Camilla Restrepo in film comment last um was that the may, yeah. the may june issue yeah um, yeah that was so fun which was a really remarkable interview that uh made me very excited to see the movie so i, I had to wait a long time but uh i think it was worth the wait um and you kind of already introduced it but do you want me to kind of break down kind of introduce yeah let's give give people a sense of what it's about um, if you want to do that. Um, so the, it's a, it's, uh, it's fairly experimental, I guess, to be use a very broad term, but, um, uh, it, the, I, I will say I struggled for like adjectives when I was like writing the introduction to my interview, because it is a little bit unclassifiable. So, yeah, you know, I, I like, I'm, I'm casting this task on you. <laughs> but there is like a narrative structure there and it's, uh, that tells the story, follows this uh, kind of outsider individual as he escapes or kind of uh, kind of moves away from a cultish group that he's been involved with in Colombia. I believe it's Medellin. Is that 
you guys know? Yeah, and, that's the city where it's, it's. Yeah. And so, and then he kind of, he kind of just sort of travels around in the city and tells his story in voiceover as he um, struggles to survive. And there's a lot of, um, I don't know, dream sequence. I don't call them dream sequences, but sort of um, interior sequence, interior sequences that display this character's kind of like inner life, whatever that. And he kind of splits off into two characters at one point. But essentially, it tells the story of his, of this guy escaping from this uh, cult. And um, yeah, and that's kind of the loosest. That's just uh, the loosest description of the plot. But um, there's a lot of stuff going on in it. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's as good as I can do on the plot description aspect. Stuff is right, though. I feel like you said there's a lot of stuff. And it is like a film that is very concerned with objects and materiality and textuality, which is, Chloe, you kind of referenced that. Um, it is in 16 millimeter. I actually saw it in Berlin. So I saw it on the big screen, just like, you know, sparkling. Uh, and it just uses color so beautifully, you know? I mean, there are these images that are almost pitch dark. You have like one little shard of light and everything feels so sensuous in the image, you know? I, I just absolutely... Uh, love the film and it, it has this obsession with kind of, uh, you know, production and reproduction. So he's working in a factory, this guy Pinky, he's trying to extricate himself from the life, this violent life of the cult and like from this like obsession with revenge. Uh, by the way, this is like based on a true story. Like it was, it's kind of a, an experimental thing where this is the guy's life story and Camilo sort of worked with him and drew from his own life, but then turned well, it into this one year. Right, you're the lead actor is. Yeah, the, yeah, is who he is is playing, and he's working in this factory. And there are these moments where the film just, uh, I don't know, they're like it just captures the grit of the environment so powerfully, even though it's like so ethereal. You know, that's what was so impressive to me. And uh, there's this amazing scene which is on the poster in which he's in front of sort of this curtain with flames like printed on them. And uh, I, I asked him about that in the interview, you know, and it's like, it's like, he, I think he described it as like a reproduction of hell or something, right? Like a, a photocopy of hell. And it has this relationship to identity and how you form that, obviously through, um, through institutions like cults, but also through pop culture, through also like the workings of capitalism, which ask you to like produce and reproduce constantly. And yeah, the factory that he works at is this is a uh, uh, bootleg t-shirt, a silkscreen, like in operation that's really, really low tech, but it, there's these shots of just like Adidas logos being printed over and over again and like Kappa logos. But yeah, it's pop culture, but it's also this kind of pop culture and like an under like at the lowest possible level like pop culture in hell like hell is i think during that scene with the flames there's this speech about like an angel like the devil pulling somebody down into hell if i'm not i can't remember exactly right, right. yeah and like on that note the voiceover like it, it much of the story is told kind of in this like very dreamy voiceover and it's so gorgeous and like I think at one point he mentions, he talks about reality as something that's like molten and something that can like transform into other things. And that kind of like 
that kind of spirit of like narrative like metamorphosis and uh kind of like personality fracturing runs through it in really interesting ways throughout and just yeah and going back to what Devika was saying about the light um there's also this amazing shot with like a zoom uh out from like a really dramatic kind of tight like flashlight frame that like made me gasp when I saw it and yeah shout out to that shot (laughs) (laughs) yeah I have to confess I saw this in a theater too and it played here in San Sebastian in the festival and I remember the first few shots like the first three or four shots are absolutely mind-blowing in a theater it's just it's so precise the light the colors the the editing, everything is put so almost obsessively into the frame that I was just, I don't know, transported to a world with another intensity. And I find really interesting this idea you were saying, Devika, about reproduction, because I think about this film as a, almost like a documentary that is made all out of uh, recreations. It's like, because it's, it's mm. this guy's life, you know, and it's his friend or a very close friend of Restrepo. And then they just recreated his whole life story by trying to produce this very precise portrait of how that life felt like and not, it's like creating some some sort of like inner realism in a way by make aestheticizing it so much. It's, I don't know, very interesting. Yeah, and I also remember kind of watching it at the end of, you know, just like one of those days in Berlin when I just saw a bunch of like very still observational films. And it just has such this elliptical sense of, you know, movement and motion. Like one scene I can't get out of my head is when he's going down the street in that, I don't know what to call it. It's like a scooter. And there's like, what do you call it? Like with an attachment? Yeah. And there's a narration. And it's just this, incredible you know you have all these like classic scenes of like people driving scooters on roads you know like uh, in cinema and I feel like this is one of those and I just I just can't get that rhythm out you know out of my mind and of course his previous work also deals so closely with rhythm and music and kind of this melding of of image and sound and yeah I I definitely think I haven't seen all the films in uh, the lineup yet but it has stood out to me as just one of the best films I've seen this year honestly um Vadim did you have any thoughts about the film or did you want to no <laughs> we've said it all <laughs> or do you disagree hated it I I haven't watched it yet. I had a oh. reaction to his previous short, so I'm treading cautiously. I know that I must engage with this, but I haven't quite gotten there yet. <laughs> I was scared you were going to be like, I'm sorry, I, I actually hated it. So this is okay. We'll get to that. Time, so. <laughs> we'll get to that yeah. yeah. But maybe you could um, take us to uh, Anne at 3000 Feet, which is another film that came up. And I, I haven't seen that one, but it seems like there is some inner realism that. Lucia talks about there's some kind of relation to that. Uh, and at 13,000 kilometers, because they're Canadian, so we're using a different measurement system here. Um, uh, Kazakh- no math allowed, in, please. I, I did not sign up to do this job in order to do math. Uh, Academy ratio, too. Oh, uh, yeah, another one. Uh, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a movie that, you know, kind of meaningfully begins with somebody jumping out of a plane you know, and doing some skydiving. And, you know, this is not, this is not composited clearly. And so that's, you know, that's kind of an excellent way to uh, get people's attention. Uh, 
I think, you know, in relationship to Kazakh Radwanski is, I guess, kind of a big deal in Toronto-based micro cinema, obviously, maybe not so obviously, um, but uh, this is, I guess, sort of, sort of scaling up from his previous work, which I think had been, including this film called How Heavy This Hammer, his previous feature, that I think had been characterized as um, emotionally difficult or scalding or, you know, hard to watch. Um, which I thought was a little over, overblown as a characterization. Like the movies were a little bit funnier on the darker side than they were, you know, searing. And I think this kind of continues in that vein. You know, he's working closely with uh, Derek Campbell, who kind of gives a performance that I think, because the movie kind of operates around this question of whether she is having some kind of nervous breakdown or if there's like a condition that she has, you know, there's there's medication involved that she may not be taking properly. Um, but the thing that I found kind of interesting about the movie, um, you know, which is which is a very performance-based film that has the good sense and mercy to end, you know, in under 80 minutes and not screw up the ending, which is just great, um, is- And Los Conductos are 70 minutes too. So we're starting off with the- 70 with the short minutes is like right where you want to be. It's the sweet spot. Um, I, th I think one of the things that the movie does that is interesting to me is that uh, many people deal with hostile workplaces or workplaces that treat them badly and that um, in which inordinate amounts of time are spent reminding people who's in charge um, rather than allowing the people doing the work to get on with it. And as a viewer, that causes you to automatically sympathize with the person on the receiving end of this. And one of the interesting things about the movie is that she works at this daycare center and she's constantly getting into these tussles with her supervisor. And of course, as a viewer, your initial reaction is to be, well, that, that supervisor is a terrible person. That is an oppressive person. She's leaning too hard on rules that don't really need to exist, except for possibly liability reasons as a way to like shut her employee down. And as the movie kind of goes on, you have to start asking your, the question, you're asking yourself the question, like, is Anne okay? You know, not, not in a judgmental way, but is there a problem here? And I do find that way of using the workplace um, to be kind of unusual and productive and interesting. Yeah, I think we all have that fantasy of um, throwing, you know, throwing a cup out of someone and <laughs> that works. I don't know about you, but it, it becomes very cathartic in a way. But I, I think it's also interesting how the film works with safeness or what is a safe space in that regard. As the, I don't, I don't remember this exactly, but isn't the free fall, you know, the first scene where she jumps of, this is very spectacular. She, she jumps off a helicopter, right, or a plane. Yeah. And um, I did together with this uh, with this scene at the daycare where they are playing with a butterfly. You know, and there's these two two spaces that you wouldn't consider as safe, which is sometimes you know a place full of children and, and someone jumping off a plane are the safest space in the film to me. You know. Oh, did you also did you also see this one? Were you a fan? Yeah, I did. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, going back to what we were saying about kind of the the running time of it, I guess like what I was really struck by is um, like I kind of went in sort of aware, hyper aware that it had been compared to like a woman under the influence. And I guess I was kind of like watching it sort of like, you know, because like when it's a performance based film, it's like, is this a lazy comparison? Like what's really going on? And I guess, so I was thinking about duration sort of in that way um, and, and sort of the way it's constructed. It's like, um, you you don't really get the full like duration of a scene. It kind of like 
skips along on the surface of it and cuts through it pretty like rapidly and it's sort of like you're barely hanging on to like wherever you are with her and like the camera's always also very like close on her and like you don't have a clear sense of gravity which obviously ties into the the skydiving piece of it but um yeah I, I I thought that was um I guess sort of like really really harrowing in a way that um felt I guess like I don't know particular to this character I don't really know where I'm going with this but yeah I guess in contrast to that kind of like long because I guess when you think of a performance-based film you think of something where it's like you're kind of you're staying in the room with the the actors but this was creating something more psychological that was definitely rooted in like this person's performance if that makes sense hmm. yeah and, what, and there's the editing is also interesting there's a lot of voice like the, there's a lot of uh uh, dialogue that kind of cuts over images so she'll be talking and you'll have an image of there'll be a shot of her and you think that she's talking in the room but then she then she won't actually be talking but it's her voice and then it'll cut to her talking so there's this like dislocation that kind of that kind of happens that definitely um yeah it makes is, is harrowing and, and kind of gives you a window into her psyche but uh, it also makes me think about the fact that one of the overarching themes of a lot of these films is this kind of uh, individuals who don't or don't quite fit in, I guess, or like kind of outsiders. And we've talked about two of them, uh, Los Conductos and this film. But um, I think, yeah, so I think that that's one, th one thing that kind of, I'm not sure what that means, but I do, I do think people are making films about that, I guess. My take. <laughs> uh, I don't know if this is a good. Sorry, Clint. You go ahead. No. I I was gonna make a segue. Like I think another film that we wanted to talk about, which is The Shepherdess and Her Seven Songs, is also kind of an outsider That's film. Right. Although I, You're catching up. You you've given a, a very flexible format to like twist into segues, but um, that's. Uh, who watched that? I know Clint, you liked it. Did anyone else see it? I watched it. You did. Okay. Uh, do either of you want to want to take us to that one? Um. So yeah, that I uh yeah, that film follows. So it start. It opens and there's this nomadic tribe of shepherds. Um. In I think Kashmir. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, it opens with a with a wedding between this one this woman who's like a, a noted beauty in the area and this and just a shepherd I guess or he just seems to be like a pretty like normal guy as far as shepherds go. He does, and, doesn't he? Like lift like a big stone. There's this like very Arthur type. Yeah, it's impressive. And then uh, and so then the tribe migrates over the mountains to a village, to sort of a, a village where they're known and where they uh, regularly, annually live and settle. And uh, what happens is this policeman in that region starts kind of um, trying to romance this beautiful young woman, this beautiful bride, and uh, just keep, and he's kind of doing it as a go-between with the, the chief of police or the head of the police department in town, sort of a, a villain in the movie. And then, um, and 
over the course of the movie, he keeps trying, and the uh, woman, Layla is her name, um, repeatedly kind of tricks him and just kind of figures out ways to avoid his, um, yeah, his attempts. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the plot. And it's structured around these four, it's these seven songs, the folk songs, I, I believe, that um, kind of cycle, that the film cycles through and shows the cycle of, of her emotions and her reactions and her experiences. Yeah, and I mean, I was quite struck by it. I think there is there is an analogy working in the film because it's set in Jammu and Kashmir, which is, you know, um, disputed and occupied territory. And it's, the film is really, I, I thought it was very interesting because, you know, films, often films in about Kashmir tend to be, you know, about the Kashmir situation. And it is that in this oblique way, but it's also really like playful, you know, it's, it's like funny and it's, it's sexual and it just has all these other energy. It's very uh, fable-like, you know, even your description, Clint, where you were like the local beauty and the shepherd, you know, that's like how, how fables are and it really works in that way. But Leila, who's, you know, she gets married to this guy. She is coveted by this police officer and the police officer is a representative of the Indian state, you know, so he's very much a stand-in for the occupying state. And she's playing them off of each other. I mean, the the analogy only goes like so far, but, you know, she she doesn't actually want him, but she seems to enjoy this, like, you know, she, she doesn't want to get married. And so this like flirtation seems to give her some kind of uh, escape from like just this, the you know, life of a bride. And she invites him to these rendezvous at night, the, the cop, but then she also takes her husband there. And then she pretends like ignorance. And the cop always wiggles his way out by saying something about terrorists, right? Oh, I was just, I was on patrol because I heard there were terrorists, which is, that's where I think the analogy is strong because that's kind of this like excuse for all sort of excesses, you know, in, in places like Kashmir. But it's so, I don't know, it's just, she keeps doing this and these two, you know, just like, buffoons keep falling for it like this cop keeps showing up he's just so like thirsty he just keeps showing up and her husband is always like you know never actually figures out what's going on and it's like offers the guy food and it's this weird game of masculinity and she's kind of trying to provoke something i i just found that so uh, different yeah, I liked that power play aspect of it too. I think that was like my favorite part of the film because it's kind of like it gets to this point where like every time she sets this rendezvous, like she wakes up her husband to like go to the particular place. She's like, oh, I think I heard something like in this part of the, the property. Um, and, and you're kind of like, is she going to wake him up? What's going to happen? And, and you're kind of trying to figure out like what what she wants out of the power play like it's in this way because it is yeah. yeah it's something so much more like like personal than just like an outcome that relates to either of the two men which i thought was cool um and yeah i mean it's it's such an interesting movie because it's like it's a very folkloric movie but it's also very kind of understated in how it's done and like kind of like it gets sort of more personal and internal as it goes on which i i really appreciated and and enjoyed i think it's very good did anyone else see it or is it the, well, uh, we have an audience question. I'm going to try and thread them in, you know, uh, if, if they appear relevant. 
there is one uh, about a film that I know uh, we were excited uh, to varying degrees to talk about. Uh, someone is asking thoughts on the metamorphosis of birds. And Chloe, I'll let you start this one off because you said you were a fan. All right, let's let's get into it. <laughs> so uh, the metamorphosis of birds for those who have not seen it yet, which I assume is most people watching, um, is uh, sort of a like experimental documentary about um, the filmmaker's family. It sort of goes um, through um, her grandparents' generation, kind of uh, then uh, their children. It's sort of like a, it, it starts out, um, you wouldn't necessarily know it's about her family, but it's about kind of a family. Um, and then it becomes clear that it's kind of like, about um, her and her father's like experiences of loss. They both lost their mothers. Um, and in that way, it also kind of expands out into being a documentary about like motherhood and kind of um, uh, the filmmaker's home country of Portugal at large. Um, but it's, she, the filmmaker comes from a very like, I think, I, I'm not sure if it's an art school background, but I know she's very influenced by kind of fine art in those contexts and um, the like, the, the shots themselves are very kind of painterly and like um, sort of haunting in that way, but um, I, I, it's hard to compare it to other things. Like uh, I guess sort of the closest comparison that I keep coming back to is kind of Agnes Varda-ish. Um, I don't know if that's gonna cause controversy in the group, but um, she uses these kind of very like um, like real world props. She'll like print, um, print her grandmother's face on a flag and bring it to the top of a mountain, like that kind of thing. But it also kind of reminded me of um, W.G. Zabald's use of photography in his novels and kind of the way that like images or objects can suggest the memory of something or kind of suggest the person at large. And I found all that really very, very moving. And um, it's, it's super singular. Um, and I can see how the style would be provocative in kind of a love it or hate it way. So I'm interested to hear the other side of this. <laughs> I know Lucia and Clint had, diff had maybe slightly different thoughts, I'm not sure. I feel like I'm in between. I have, there are things that I liked about it and some things that I didn't like as much, but Lucia, what, what, what? Mm, I think what, what I like about it is that the narrative is uh, smartly weaved. Like you were saying, like you, you learn what this film is about very slowly into the process. So I think you really learn that this is a film about two people whose mothers died when they were very young. Well, this is a total spoiler, right? Halfway through the film. <laughs> uh, so you start to, so there is this sense of, it's very, there is this sense of handcraft or craft, uh, both in the making of the images, but also in the idea of how to weave a narrative. But then I, my, I guess my problem with it is that the ideas on motherhood that it handles um, make me, slightly uncomfortable or are a little against my convictions of this idea of mothers as, you know, the, this home, this presence in the home, um, which is particular to this experience, but to me, I don't know, it's just, it comes from another time, a time that luckily is another time, you know, so I feel like it doesn't project into the future, that idea of motherhood, but it just leaves I feel like it's a film that perhaps lives too much in the place where that, those objects that it handles go, uh, come from, which is the past. Yeah. I don't know, Flint, if you... I think I kind of agree with that, uh, but I also found it 
to be very moving to, I think uh, maybe halfway through. I, up, like, I thought a lot of, uh, uh, it was kind of cloying really. Like there were a lot of these visual ideas and kind of tricks and some of them were very beautiful, but then they would like, there's this repeated shots of um, leaves being reattached to trees and it's just like a, sh a shot played in reverse and then and it just it was like done many many times and it was like it kind of wore out its welcome a little bit but like I it just yeah there's something very moving about the movie at the same time like I responded really uh, strongly to it while also uh, having some problems with that depiction of the mother as this like, you know, great mother that with seven kids at home taking care of all the kids while the father's like out at sea and is distant and is writing back how much he loves her and thinks she's beautiful. And that's yeah. kind of traditional family, the celebration of like that tradition of this, I don't even know if that's traditional. Yeah, I, I definitely hear you on that. Um, I, I guess like, no. I... I it was also very moving too by the end that was uh... yeah I guess like I for me kind of leaned on it more as like a very personal story about um projecting back and recreating like one specific person um so yeah I, I guess I was more focused on on those aspects but yeah and there's one shot of a like a time-lapse shot of a peony blooming that was like kind of like I don't know just like kind of my eyes popped open. It was like a very psychedelic experience suddenly in the middle of the movie. There were some other things where I thought it was kind of, you know, like stretching, like there's a, I don't know, but. Um, well, the viewers can, uh, if you watch this film, you can figure out who is right. So <laughs> maybe that's, <laughs> yeah. that's motivation. Uh, what do you uh, tell us, uh, you know, something that you want to talk about? What do I want to do? Uh, no pressure. Uh, stir up some debate. Come on. Oh, Lord. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I wanted to highlight, I guess, a movie that I feel like didn't get enough love in general. Um, it, it was at Venice last year, and then it was at Toronto, Valentin Bastianovich's Atlantis. Um, so this movie is 108 minutes and I actually early on kind of got the idea that we were doing like the whole tableau based thing. So I started keeping a tally. It's 28 shots. Um, they're all pretty spectacular. You are in America like a viewer. Yeah, yeah. Always lead the minutes. I need metrics. I need objective outside feedback. Um, you know, I, th I think for me, a lot of, you know, What's, you know, the, the whole idea of new directors, new films coming so soon after Rotterdam, especially, I think that it's kind of the most reliable lineup in New York of um, this, this stuff that's kind of out there, less commercial, more, you know, trying to push the boundaries. And of course, I think a big question- Very international too. Is, yeah. Is a good and I, I think that, um, you know, having kind of, kind of quick grown up on slow cinema, you know, about 10 years ago, it's like, gosh, we're gonna need to figure something else out here at some point. But then you wanna see somebody play the hits and do it in a new way. And to have a movie that is, um, you know, the plot of which I don't even really feel like describing, but is is really intensely engaged with like very elaborate tableaus that are operating in different registers. Like there's a, a landscape art kind of shot where this guy needs to fill up an outdoor uh, bath and he has to run a hose from the top 
back of the frame down this landscape and then fill up the bath. Um, now this is not push, this is not, you know, blazing new trails and landscape art. It's like very familiar, but it's also very hard to do correctly. And it's one of those movies that, you know, what we don't have in these press screenings is the experience to watch people walk out and to see exactly what the moment is where they're like, you know what? No, no more of this. <laughs> and that was, um, and, and that was a real moment for me at TIFF last year, you know, watching it, you know, with my little cranky row of friends and we're all just like, oh, this is the good stuff. And then that's the shot that drives people crazy. And it's like, oh, so this is the thing. But, um, you know, if you're, if, if there are Brazil fans out there watching, there's a Brazil shot in here as well with a gigantic talking head firing an entire workforce. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a, a, a suicide early on that's handled with like one of the only camera movements in the entire movie. Like this is just good stuff. Um, so that was, that was the thing that I wanted to make sure that um, got shouted out. I believe it's the gentleman's fourth film. Sometimes it takes a while but that's kind of the whole point of allowing people to develop their craft. So I did, I did want to shout that out. Uh, that was a good pitch. Did anyone else want to add something to that? Did, was it on anyone else's list? If not, I do have, if we're going to go into walkout films, I have a direction to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so also someone asked like, what would be a good double feature? I am not saying that this would be a good double feature, but I did watch these films together and it was an interesting experience. I saw Kala Azar, which is by uh, Yanis Rafa, I think is the director's name, and The Trouble With Being Born, which is another co controversial film that you know we can get to and I'll, I'll kind of keep it brief. Um, but Kala Azar, I was really just, I did not know anything about the film going in except that their dogs figured in it prominently um, and you know, often these kinds of films can be sort of cutesy. I mean, I, you know, I know I saw the synopsis and it's like a couple works at a crematorium for pets and there's dogs and it's sort of slightly dystopic. And it really took me by surprise. I mean, it, it is, it, I still don't know how to place it. Like it felt like utterly unplaceable to me. You just, you follow this couple who work for a crematorium. So they go to various people's houses who recently lost pets. And they take the pet and basically like send back the ashes and do the whole ritual around it. Um, and it just, the film just kind of follows them as they go through these errands. But the landscape is just, I, I just couldn't figure out where it was. And it wasn't really post-apocalyptic, but there's like, I don't know, this like, uh, a grit to it, you know, everything is kind of dusty, everything feels like under construction, you know, there's just, um, there's also these migrant workers who are not subtitled, but actually they were speaking Hindi, so I kind of picked up that they were South Asian, which I don't know if I would have picked up otherwise, I mean, it's just, you just can't place where different people are from, even though I think the film is the main like language of the characters is Greek. And there's no real explanation for like why these people are coexisting, what they're all doing. And the film opens with like the protagonist, like in the opening scene, they're having sex, but it's this close shot of their bodies where you don't even know what it is. Like you don't know what you're looking at, you know, it's just like flesh and skin. And there's a lot of that kind of cinematography and editing where you know, the, the body, both the human body and the landscape and the animal body is like denaturalized and just, uh, there are just certain cuts where, you know, you see the characters in a swimming pool and then it's the seamless cut to a dog paddling 
in like a puddle or, you know, underwater. So I'm not sure what actually happens in the film. There's not like a whole lot of plot, but it's just constantly, you know, making me guess like what I'm looking at and just kind of got under my skin in like a positive way, I guess, you know, it just, it was a, an otherworldly life that obviously wasn't so otherworldly, you know, it's like you take the way we co and cohabit the world with animals and, you know, the world around us, and then you move, move the needle just like slightly and you get this world, which, which I thought was just very unique and interesting. Um, did anyone else see it before I launch into the other one? Well, I, that, then that's my like shout out. I feel like that was a pretty nice uh, watch. And then the trouble with being born, which is so disturbing and so like weird and unsettling, also sort of dystopian. And I'm gonna try and like really keep it succinct because I don't know how to describe this film. But it's about a man who has this like, you think at first that it's her, his daughter, but it's an android and it's revealed in again, a very oblique way. Like you kind of piece it together and you are guessing for a while, I feel. And it's, you, you kind of learn that, you know, there's a tragedy and he lost his child at some point. And so now he has this like Android replacement and her face is weirdly fuzzy. And actually the actress wore a silicone mask, which is also, also to protect the actress's identity because basically their relationship, you know, turns much darker and, uh, you know, d deeply unsettling. And uh, that android is sort of adopted, wanders away, is adopted by another character. And I think it's, it is provocative. I think it's, uh, we were talking before we started, like it is trying to go for something like under the skin where it's um, this depiction of the relationship it's, it's from the point of view of a non-human entity, you know, who is just at that border between human and non-human. And it's kind of making us question what not just consciousness is, but also like how gender, you know, the things like gender and uh, memory and a sense of like hurt and a sense of like self that can be hurt, like all of that, like what are the moments where uh, those sorts of like very humanistic, I guess, dimensions of our existence are born. And I don't think it's quite as intelligent as something like Under the Skin, which is a film I like very much. I don't think it's quite as deep, but there is something that worked for me there because I don't know, it's almost like a lot of movies about AI or about like, what if this thing attained, you know, desire or attained morality or attained something like anthropocentric. But this film like does not give you that. And until the end, it's like this thing will want what you wanted to want because you built this. So what it desires is what you told it to desire. And this is, it's something so like nihilistic, like you've made something that's non-human, but you're just trapped in like the, this depraved humanity, you know, there's no way of actually transcending that. Anyway, so that is the, my like, pitch. I know there are naysayers here and I, I do want to hear your take. And I do want to say it is a disturbing movie for anyone who's, who's tuning in. You know, don't, don't go in like thinking that it's not going to disturb you. Sounds like the ideal double feature for like you know, lockdown <laughs> <laughs> in winter. 
<laughs> not use the word ideal, but it is. Both films are quite thought provoking, and yeah, definitely like locked down in that like uh, apocalyptic feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, our clans. Yeah, no. go ahead. Does oh. someone talk? <laughs> I, I, I can say something if no one wants to. Uh, well, I mean, I guess like I. I'm really engaged by the way you're talking about the intellectual ideas in the movie, but I felt like when I was watching it, um, I got to this point where I, I understood what she wanted me to think about the she, the filmmaker, wanted me to think about, um, but I was left kind of cold by the way that it was done or something. I, I have this problem sometimes with like higher concept stuff where it's like, we're trying to get you to an idea and a thought process, but it's kind of done this very like clinical, to me, it felt a little like cliched, kind of like Euro art house, like sterile style that I found a little flat for me. So that was my, my issue with it. Yeah, totally. I felt like the film is trying to impersonate this idea of a silicon, the silicon mask, you know? So it has this very chirurgical, but also like this emotional dryness for you to, in a way, empathize both aesthetically with the film, with the character, in, into entering this dry zone of emotion to be able to handle the very difficult stuff that it's going to uh, bring about. And I feel like the very difficult stuff is between scare quotes because of that, because of doing that um, emotional dryness move. I mean, I'll, I'll throw in here, I guess, um you know, when you're, when you're home, you can walk out and not have to take the subway back home. Like every, everything's <laughs> a lot faster. Everything's a lot simpler. Um, or the don't downside, be like, excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> you know, I, I know, I know that someone on the other side can see that I stopped watching, but then, you know, so technically I don't have an opinion about it. I mean, yeah, the NSA knows which films you've walked out of at home. I, I'd rather not, but I, I was, I was watching it. This is another Academy ratio movie. Um, so we have that going. And I, and I was looking at the girl's face for a while because it's kind of a compelling effect. But my really kind of unsophisticated reaction, which is kind of very close to what Lucia was saying and what Chloe was saying as well, is like, yes, I've seen a bunch of these, you know, aside, of, aside from the, um, the silicon thing, which is neat. I've seen a lot of movies like this. And I had found, <laughs> I had found a review that called it, you know, like the pedophile AI movie or something. And I was like, ooh, I should not. <laughs> I should be taking a look at that. And after 20 minutes, I thought like nothing could possibly happen that would be interesting to me. Like anything could happen, but within this framework, I would never be interested in it because I don't like any of your shot choices or how you're doing anything. So then, you know, I kind of moved on. I do think some, uh, an interesting thing happens at like 45 minutes. Well, yeah. <laughs> so that's my defense. But I, I understand sometimes you just, you know, you know, you're not going to be able to, to, to arrive to at a it. place of measured ambivalence is not really something I strive to like do more than I absolutely <laughs> I was do. very struck by the cinematography right away so you know I think that's a taste difference yeah. as well and that kind of kept me going um I, the, academy, the academy ratio going for it like let's agree <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, you know, we are close to out of time, so I want to continue, like, the shout-outs and maybe go over to Lu you, Lucia. And actually, someone asked uh, about shorts, and I know that there is, like, one or two shorts that you wanted to shout out. Um, if you want to talk about those. Oh, yeah. Well, I wanted to recommend Playback. Uh, this is a nationalism bit of a thing because it's an Argentinian short. 
but um, I'm, I'm really interested by this. Um, I've seen it both in a theater and not in a theater. And it's, it's a short that in a way comes from a previous experience because Austina Comedy has made a film about with this kind of materials about her father and the secret story that she found out about her father being before she, uh, she knew him having all this uh, militant activity as a homosexual during the dictatorship. And then she made this short um, about this group of trans people, performers, also during the dictatorship and later on in Argentina. Um, but it's a short that actually, in a way, tries to recuperate the memory of a person who's gone by making it uh, and making it look as if it were archived. So it, Mix, mixes documentary and fiction in a very smart way, trying to ask a question, the same as in Los Conductos, like what is fiction actually? When something like genocide or the AIDS crisis or violence is at stake. So if you can check it, check that out. And then and I don't know if I remember. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a couple of shorts I'd love to draw attention to that are close out shorts program one. Uh, one uh, premiered at Rotterdam this year, uh, Raji Savarinche, who's a Sri Lankan born filmmaker based in California doing, he's his own colorist, which is very impressive. He's shooting widescreen black and white. Uh, the, I feel like the log line is a little forbidding, you know, cause there's a kind of allegorical Sri Lankan magical realism thing going on. Uh, I think it's totally fine to just watch it and be like, great cuts, you know, great colors, great black and white. <laughs> I think that's a, and the sense of editing on it is uh, very unexpected. That's definitely a straight up experimental short, um, despite having its log line kind of presented as a narrative allegory. So I, you know, encourage the more go, roll with it rather than trying to overthink it. And the short after that is um, called Sun Dog. And it's directed by uh, Dorian Jespers. And so if we have any Eduardo Williams, uh, uh, Human Surge, could see a Puma fans in the house, or, you know, Gaspar Noé when he's not being super annoying. Um, but in Russia, but made by a Danish person um, that just kind of starts with an extremely spectacular shot where it's just like, are you floating over miniatures? Oh no, this is a real city. And proceeds to eventually eventually just hover over somebody's head who's just like peeing in the dead of night. Um, there's some really spectacular footage of an extremely real blizzard in there. And the whole thing is just designed to blast your eyeballs out, which is always what I'm in the mood for. So those two are very cool. Cool. Um, let, oh, uh, there's an, an audience member saying, could Vadim repeat the name of the Tableau movie he liked? That was Atlantis, right? Yes. Okay, see, we have takers for tableaus. Uh, Clinton, Chloe, I think you each had like a film you wanted to shout out. Uh, I'd love to, you know, we're, we have only a couple minutes. So if we could do like a rapid fire, I do want those films to get discussed. So uh, Clint, do you want to go? Sure, yeah, I, uh, I really like 12,000, uh, which is a French film directed by Nadej Trebal, who also stars in it as uh, one half of a couple. Um, and it, the movie kind of follows the, uh, the male half of that couple played by Arie Wartaller, um, I believe his name is, uh, who's kind of this, gives this wild comic performance as this kind of cartoon character like guy just uh, desperately trying to make 12,000 
euros in two months in order to match his uh, girlfriend's uh, salary in that same period. And I mean, this is really like talking about the, like, you know, giving a recap of the plot really doesn't do justice to what makes this movie remarkable, which is this kind of strange tone that it has that is just, it maintains this balance between comedy and kind of it uses a lot of genre elements. There's like thriller stuff going on. There's uh, musical stuff going on. Um, and it uses all of that to talk about like the pressures that capitalism creates, that jobs create, that work creates and uh, what those pressures do to love and things that don't necessarily um, make money. So I think that uh, I thought it was a very interesting movie and it's something I'll probably uh, spend some time thinking about again. I'd love to recommend uh, Days of Cannibalism, which was directed by uh, Toboho Edkins. And um, just like really brief, uh, it's about um, a landlocked uh, region, Lesotho in uh, South Africa. Um, that uh, is being developed by uh, Chinese migrant workers. And it's sort of about the local ranching community um, and the people from China who come there sort of like trying to get a sense of each other, trying to, you know, the, like the tensions that arise um, as global capitalism expands and moves into new places. And uh, the director studied with um, Valeska Grisebach, if we have any fans of her amazing film, Western, in the audience. Um, and I think that, <laughs> there you go. And I think that's really useful because it's kind of, hmm, yeah, but it's sort of about this like uh, kind of space and transition, um, inter intercultural kind of like meshing and confrontation and stuff without really like taking, privileging one point of view over the other. So I, I thought it was great and people should seek it out. Well, I guess we covered everything. The festival started yesterday, goes through until December 20. And you can find out more at filmlink.org. Uh, we managed to get through quite a few questions. We couldn't get through a couple, which were asking about movies that I know that we haven't seen. So I'm sorry about that. Uh, but, you know, um, we'll be doing these kinds of things again and hopefully we'll, we'll get to interact more. So thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.